If you could uh, get your Bibles, if you haven't turned them there already, uh, get to John chapter 12. Uh, uh, first off, I want to give a huge thank you to, to Jason last Sunday. I wasn't with you guys, and you knew we were in really good hands under his spiritual care and, and preaching the word of the Lord. If you didn't get a chance to listen to it, I would encourage you to go online on our website or on YouTube, and you can find it there. I think we had some sound difficulties last week, so it might not all be up there. Sorry, Jason, this, we still love you. I mean, it's still really good. And what I got to hear was really encouraging. Uh, so thank you, brother. Um, we were at a wedding last week up in Pennsylvania on Saturday night. There was no way we were going to make it back in time for me to be coherent enough to be able to preach the word of the Lord to you today. But by God's grace, I will this morning. And uh, the, the, the message, uh, or the title of the message this morning is called The Aroma of Worship. Can you say that? The Aroma of Worship. Guys, we have brought worship to the Lord this morning through song and and through reading his word back to him. And when we talk about the idea of worship, a lot of times we picture simply just being up on a stage or in a congregation singing some songs that talk about God and singing about the gospel. But, but worship at its essence, uh, I'm going to break it down into two words, worth-ship, worth, W-O-R-T-H-ship is what we mean by worship. It means that we're agreeing and we have the faith that God is worth our worship. He is worthy of it. It belongs to him. He deserves it. No one else. That's why we sing songs like Creator, where all of creation ought to magnify our Creator. Now, we, we can worship through song. We can worship through uh, liturgies and reading God's word back to him. But most of our worship happens uh, when you open your eyes in the morning, when you wake up in the dawn, in the sun rising. Or when you're, when you're with your kids and, 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 and they, they poke at you in some way and you feel triggered and you're like, no, Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose your way, not my way. And, and that's worship, right? You're saying, no, he's worth following even in that, right? Like it's in, it's in everything that we do, we can worship the Lord. We can, we can describe his worth with every part of our lives. How we live, how we give, what we, how we serve, what, what we do in life, it, it can all be a song or an aroma of worship to the Lord. You can smell good for the Lord. <laughs> Your life can have an aroma, a fragrance of worship to Jesus. When people pass by you, smell. I smell, smell something about that, that person. There's something different. And the thing is, there's not, there's not like greater acts and lesser acts of worship. Think about it. You can, you, can, uh, you can be patient on the highway like Joseph joked about. You can, you can bless them and, and you can also give a mighty donation to the Lord. Like giving to the Lord and, 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 and worshiping can, can be all sorts of things. And it's not like here's grade A worship and here's grade C worship. If it's to the Lord, everything you do is worth worshiping him, right? You can eat and you can drink to the Lord. And all God's people said... Yeah, because we love some food. <laughs> now, I will tell you this, though, that there are some acts of worth-ship that have pierced time and stand above it and have entered into the generation's legacies. There are acts of worship that have... Um, gone above just simply a song sung on a Sunday morning. There are acts of worship to Jesus 
that have entered into the legacies in the church. And, and some of them that come to mind, uh, like in the hall of faith, in the hall of worship to the Lord, uh, you might not know this. Uh, there's a, there's a, there were two guys named John Leonard Dobear and David Nitschman. And when they heard of a slave island called St. Thomas in the Indies that never heard the gospel and people there would never be able to leave the island, they decided to put themselves into slavery and go to that island so that they can bring the gospel to people who had never heard it. And they spent their lives on that island proclaiming Jesus. That is an act of worship. I think of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and Ed McCauley and Peter Fleming and Roger Udarian going into the Aka Indians in the Ecuador who were, who were uh, known as cannibals or, or known as uh, hostile to outsiders. And when they landed, they were immediately pierced through with spears. They were killed. That was an act of worship because they knew that, that they didn't have the gospel that was going to save them from the grave. And Jesus was worth going there for. And yet, they're the ones who died. And yet, I also think of Elizabeth Elliot, who's, who was Jim Elliot's wife, whose husband had just been speared through, and they found his body uh, down in the river. And Elizabeth follows his, her husband, goes to this tribe, and the Indians there are, are overwhelmed. They're amazed at this fact that this woman would come, even though her husband they had just killed and they think, oh man, we've got to hear what she has to say. She preaches the gospel. They are radically different. They are in the kingdom of God now simply because Elizabeth wanted to continue the act of worship to the king and be an aroma, a fragrance of worship to Jesus. You see, there are acts of worship, of worship that kind of transgress the days and go into the halls and the legacies of our faith in the church. And, and we read one today in the Gospel of John where Jesus himself said of this act that everywhere that the gospel is preached, this act of worship will be remembered. Wouldn't that be kind of cool if you had like an act of worship to the Lord that Jesus himself was like, yeah, everybody's going to hear about this. Not that we do it for that, because if we did it for that, then it wouldn't be that, right? <laughs> Can't, mm, check your heart. <laughs> so we see in this story today an incredible act of worship that is, is fragrant. It's an aroma of worship that Jesus says pierces time. Everywhere, it's, the gospel is told, everybody's going to know about it. And we also see in this text how people will respond often to great acts of worship to the Lord. How some people will be attracted to it and some people will find it stingy and smelly. But either way, we bring our worship to the king. So let me try to set the context again. If you can remember uh, back in John chapter 11, Lazarus had just died. The sisters are upset. Jesus shows up. The sisters have their moments with Jesus, and eventually he just goes to the tomb. He speaks and says, hey, Lazarus, come on out. Lazarus comes out like a penguin waddling in those grave clothes, and, and he's good to go. He's alive again. And, 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 and like you heard from last week, the aftermath of that, the, the ramifications of that were the Jews at that point decided, all right, this is, we've got to kill Jesus. We've got to end him. They start plotting to do that. Now, we find out at the end of 
last week's passage that Passover is coming. If you can remember, Passover is that Jewish celebration of the Passover lamb that was sacrificed uh, uh, to protect them from the 10th plague while they were slaves to Egypt. That Passover lamb continually was sacrificed year after year in remembrance of that great deliverance of that great act of worship. And so it's kind of interesting that we're heading into the Passover season. By the way, this is the Passover week where Jesus himself is crucified because we're in that part of the Gospel of John. By the way, we are halfway through the Gospel of John. <laughs> Year and a half. Let's keep going. This, we're heading into, we're, we're pretty much on our way to the cross now with Jesus as we follow him through this text. And so we're heading into Passover celebration, the holy week that we call, we call it the holy week, right? And, and John... You guys have seen this before. John does some interesting things with his gospel that some of the others don't do. You know how when we read, we have already studied that Jesus went into the the temple and flipped some tables, right? You remember how we saw that in John chapter 2? In the other gospels, that's recorded during Holy Week. So John does some things where he kind of moves events around chronologically, to make more theological points than he does to try to document chronological events in the order in which they occur. So what John does here is he puts this account before the triumphal entry, pretty much, pretty much the day before the triumphal entry, because we can see that's what's next in chapter 12. But Matthew and Mark put it after. Now, The reason why John is doing that, the reason why John puts this anointing at Bethany before the Passover, because Jesus connects it to his death, and John's connecting it to Lazarus' resurrection. So he's trying to uh, gate the two together uh, from John 11 to John 12, heading to the cross. Now, we see here in verse 1, how many days before the Passover was it? Six. Six days before Passover. Now, Uh, When we think about days, we think midnight to midnight, right? 12 a.m. to 12 a.m. Jews did not think about days that way. Jews thought about days where at, at like nightfall, the night before, is when the next day starts. So tonight at like 9 p.m., let's just say 9 p.m., is when Monday starts. And so we have here six days before Passover, most likely... This is landing us probably on Friday night and Saturday is when we're there. So that would technically be Sabbath, Sabbath. Now, we also see six days before Passover, and we see something else in the scene, in the context. Jesus goes to where? He goes to Bethany because who's there? Lazarus. Lazarus. I like the participation this morning. I appreciate that. Because good old Laz was hanging out. Laz was there. He had been, you know, that guy that was, you remember, what, is he, what, is, what does John describe him as? Uh, the what? The one Jesus had what? Raised him from the dead. The one Jesus raised. Every time Lazarus is mentioned, henceforth, it's, he's the one who was raised from the dead. You remember that guy? He, yeah, Jesus raised him from the dead. You remember, hey, do you remember Lazarus? The one Jesus raised from the dead? It's going to happen again and again and again. And it's just stinking awesome. I love it. Now, we still have this context Jesus is going to Bethany six days before the Passover, and he's going there because Lazarus is there. He had left after he had raised Lazarus from the dead from Bethany. He went up to Ephraim. He comes back after things have cooled down. Can you imagine what 
Bethany was like, what that city was like, or that town was like, at like the day Jesus rose Lazarus from the grave. Like, you, like you, what was in the newspapers, in the Bethany Gazette or whatever, right? Like who, how many people were talking in the stores, right? All this stuff. Man, you about that Lazarus guy, Jesus rose from the dead. Man, Jesus rose him from the, like it was just buzzing. And so of course Jesus left and then he comes back when things have calmed down just a little bit. And what do they, what do they do when Jesus shows up? Verse two, they give him a what? They give him a dinner. That was like the easiest part. They give him a dinner. They throw him a feast. Now, John doesn't record where this feast is held, only that we know who was there. Uh, Matthew and Mark record that it was at Simon the leper's house. Simon the leper, we don't know much about, but obviously he was a leper, but Jesus probably healed him because, you know, he does that sort of thing. So they're at Simon's house, and Simon is probably hosting and he's invited all these people to come together and celebrate the great work of the Lord in Lazarus through, through Jesus, right? And so, so we find Martha and Mary and Laz all chilling at this house with Jesus. Now, we see the three of them, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, are uniquely doing things in this dinner, right? They have unique roles uh, are revolving around the dinner table. And all of them are acts of worship to Jesus. So for example, we've got Martha in the kitchen. She's serving. She's prepping dinner. We've got Laz reclining at the table with Jesus. And I swear, if any of you men go home and you're thinking, yeah, that's the way it should be, and you think that this text is biblical justification to get your wife in the kitchen and you don't got to do a thing, I'm going to flip a lid. <laughs> this text is not proof for that. Although I do enjoy my wife cooking. <laughs> no, each of these are acts of worship. Right? We have Martha who is demonstrating an act of worship in working. Can you say working? She is working. She's serving. She's bringing things together. Just like, you know, how she was doing the last time Mary and Martha were with Jesus. And Mary's like, Martha's like, oh, why is Mary sitting at your feet? Blah, blah, blah. Right. Martha is working. Her service to Jesus is the evidence of Jesus' worship. Prepping meals, bringing them to the table. It's beautiful. And can you imagine? I mean, I, I, oh, man, I, I love it when a good meal is prepping and the aroma of that meal is just filling the home and you can tell because you smell it and your mouth just starts drooling a little bit. Oh man, I'm thinking about food right now. When you're, when you're smoking some meat and you, you smell the aroma of, of that Boston butt with the apple wood breezing through it. You can enjoy that smell to the glory of God. And I'm not kidding. You can thank the Lord for a good meal because it's a common grace. Remember what he said. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of the Lord. So we've got Martha working. We have Lazarus as a witness. Can you say witness? Witness. Witness. He is an aroma of witness. He is aroma of worship. His life is a testimony 
of Jesus' worship. You guys know those people around you, right? Where their lives have been so radically changed. They are so different. And when you look at them, you're like, man, I can't help but just say Jesus is worthy. Look at that man's testimony. Lazarus is a witness. His testimony is about Jesus' worship. It smells of the glory of God. Because I don't know, how many of you have ever seen anybody raise someone from the dead four days later? No, we don't smell that these days. <laughs> Bethany was smelling that fragrance. It's the aroma of Christ. The aroma of worship. And so we, we've got this beautiful scene where, where we kind of see what the Christian life can look like. We see that there are acts of worship that are working. And we can see that there are acts of worship that are witnessing, right? Both describe the worthiness of Christ. Both are declaring how Jesus is worthy. Work and witness. But ultimately, these are mentioned along the way to what Jesus says is one of the acts of worship that will be remembered through all the generations. And it's from Mary. It's from Mary. Look at verse 3. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. All right, so let's break that down for a little bit. Mary takes a pound, right, which uh, there's some translation, interest, like interesting things in the translation. It's probably about 12 to 15, 12 to 15 ounces for us, right, which would, would look something like a, like a chicken noodle soup can. Right? Something about that big, right? Which in this day was a, a large bottle, comparatively. She takes a pound of this perfume, uh, of expensive nard. Now, now, Scripture, John goes out of his way to describe it as pure nard, as genuine nard. Nard, how many of you know nard? I didn't think so. I didn't know either. I'm not expecting you to know it. Nard is actually oil probably extracted from the root of the Indian nard plant from India. So think about it. They're not in India, right? They're, they're in Bethany, which means this stuff was imported from India to Bethany, which makes this stuff very valuable, very precious, which is why John describes it as very expensive, pure nard. Now, we find out later in Judas's comment that he kind of values this nard, this perfume, I'll call it. How much did he say it's worth? A year's wages. A year's wages. That's 300 denarii. One denarii is a day wage for the average laborer in that time. Now, now uh, comparing our average salaries to theirs probably won't help, but let me just say, take your day wage and multiply it by 300, and that's pretty much what you get in a year. That's your annual salary for an average laborer. And this bottle of perfume is worth a year of your salary. Oh, that's a lot. That's an enormous price. Now, we don't know how 
Mary came across this. We don't know if it's something that was inherited. We don't know if the family themselves are just wealthy and that's just like, oh, I've got like five of those. That's fine. Uh, We don't know. Uh, Maybe it was a gift that was given to them while they were grieving from somebody, a benefactor. We don't know how she came across it, but it was in her possession. And not only that, but we don't even know what it was planned for, what her intentions ultimately or, or originally were for for this. It could have been like a dowry price, right? Some commentators were saying that this is, this is something that would have been used as far as like conferring her for, for marriage. Others, uh, it could have been savings, right? Some sort of like, like uh, rainy day kind of thing. While we don't know what ultimately was you intended for, we don't know where it came from. Mary certainly knows what it is for now. Think about it. Just a few days prior to this dinner, she was weeping over the loss of her brother. And Jesus comes in and raises Lazarus from the grave. This Jesus guy He's the resurrection and the life. And now her brother's reclining at the table, sitting there with his rescuer, with their rescuer, who pulled all of them out of grief as he pulled Lazarus out of the grave. She goes to the feet. Of Jesus. Remember what she did the last time she was at the feet of Jesus? She wept. She cried. She complained and doubted, asked her hard questions of Jesus. She goes back to those same feet now with this pure, expensive perfume. And she anoints those same feet, not with her tears, but with her worship with this expensive ointment. So if Martha shows Jesus' worship through working and Lazarus shows us Jesus' worship through witness, Mary shows us Jesus' worship through worship, through the aroma of worship. Mary has come to the conviction that Jesus is worth giving everything to. She realizes it's worth it to give everything to Jesus. Did you notice, like, she didn't go into the cupboard and pull out that cheap knockoff stuff from Walmart and come out and be like, hey, Jesus, give me your wrists. All right. Rub it on your neck and on your feet. That's all I can give you. And I'm going to go put this back. And that's all I have for you. No. No. She pours it all out, every drop. Matthew and Mark indicate that she started at his head. Jesus, in their account, says that she's anointed his body. John emphasizes that his feet were anointed as well. Guys, this is radical. Here's why. Touching how many, how many of you feel comfortable with someone giving you a foot massage after you've had that foot in a sock and a shoe working all day 
and it's, it, you, can, you can smell it when you take your, your sock off, and the neighbor down the street can smell it. How many of you are comfortable with somebody giving you a foot massage when you know your feet stink? <laughs> of course, some of the guys, jeez. <laughs> guys have this, oh man, we're just terrible at self-appearance. We can be like bulging and like busting hair. Yeah, look in the mirror, man, I'm looking good today. Come on, it's ridiculous. No, you see, feet, in this day at least, were considered the most unclean part of the human body, right? Some of you know this because Jesus, later in the next chapter, washes his disciples' feet. We'll get to that. But touching the feet of somebody was regarded by the Jews in this day an experience that should have normally been reserved for slaves, for servants, and and others to whom very little honor was owed. And here comes Mary, not a slave, not a servant. She comes and she takes the posture of one, of a lowly servant. She anoints Jesus' feet. And then what does she do? She undoes her hair. And she uses her own hair to wipe the excess off of Jesus' feet. Now, obviously, I don't have enough hair to like, get down that low, but. In that day, the, the hair of a woman was her glory. It was the, the highest part of her. It was kind of her crown, which is why you see women depicted in that time of having coverings over their hair to cover their glory. It was what we find, what, what the men often found as attractive in women, which, is, which, is, which by the way, later on in, in like the letters to the Corinthians, Paul writes how women should wear coverings. That was because Romans would require the women to undo their hair and show their glory, and it was immodest. They felt like they were being used. So Paul was saying, no, you wear your coverings because you don't have to show your glory. We're not going to extort you for that. But Mary here before Jesus takes her own glory, takes her own crown, undoes it, and uses it to wipe the dirtiest part of the human body, Jesus' feet. And so the, the oil on Jesus' feet, this perfume, it's, you can see it there, and, and then you can see the smell and the scent and the oil caught up in Mary's hair, in her glory, in her radiance, in the best part of her. When Mary undid her hair, she was humbling herself and laying her glory at his feet. She's saying, I am going to offer the best parts of me to you. She is demonstrating the depths of humble servitude, of humble submission to and affection for Jesus. Now, we know that Jesus takes her act of worship and, she, and he points it at, as meaningful towards something. In verse 7, right, 
Jesus says that, that her act of worship, the aroma, was an actual anointing for him for his what? Burial. Burial. For his own death. You can see John connecting it, right? Because raising Lazarus, stopping Lazarus' funeral meant Jesus was starting his. And in order to stop our funerals, he starts his. And he's on his way to his own. And John's connecting that. But Mary's act of worship is anointing Jesus for his burial. Now, I, I can't help but think about this. If this oil, and this, if this perfume is that expensive, that important, that valuable, and Jesus is saying, it's anointing for my burial, I'm betting, I'm guessing, most likely, that the crowd gathered around the cross could smell the fragrance as he's there on the cross. So her act of worship, Jesus says, now this is pointing to my burial, but it is still an act of worship to Jesus. And, and look at what happens when she does it. She takes it, anoints his feet, and wipes his feet with her hair. And then what happens to the house? The house is filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Everybody smells it. And, and, and so we see here that her act of love and her act of worship was this public, spontaneous, sacrificial, lavish, personal, and unembarrassed act of worship. Jesus later in Mark and, or other, in Mark and Matthew calls it a good work. You know, Ecclesiastes 7.1. Ecclesiastes 7.1 says this. A good name is better than precious ointment. A good name is better than precious ointment. Mary's got both. A good name and precious ointment. She gives it to Jesus. Guys, this is extravagant worship. The cost of this perfume is extravagant. Now, I also want to make sure that you guys know that just because this perfume was so expensive, yes, it, it demonstrates this great act of worship, but didn't Jesus also look at the widow who brought the two pennies in, put them in to the altar, and said, this woman gave more than anybody else? So this isn't about comparison to everyone else. It's in comparison to what you have and what you bring in worship to the Lord. The question is, are you giving what is most valuable to Jesus? Some of you just give your Sunday mornings. Jesus wants, wants much more. Like, think about it. When was the last time that you, like, gave this really extravagant gift to Jesus? When's the last time you demonstrated this extravagant act of love and worship to him? You know, one question you ought to ask is, what are the limits? Right? What are the limits to which you're willing to go? What are the limits of, of what you'd be willing to offer to Jesus, of what you'd be willing to give to Jesus? You know, it's at those limits where you usually start to find those things that you actually value more than Jesus himself. So, you, I mean, examine your hearts, but I'd also just kind of relate this today. What does this look like for us today, right? Like, what do we do with this? Like, uh, do we, do, should we go buy a, um, 
like a bottle of 50 grand dollars worth of, of perfume and just pour it out on something? Go dump it on the cross right up there. Right, is that what we should do? By the way, I did do the research. You can find bottles of perfume that are way more expensive than that. Uh, you can find uh, uh, from DKNY, Golden Delicious. It's a million dollars an ounce. Does that mean you go buy that? No. No. Remember that song from, from generations ago? Oh, well, oh, it's my generation. I guess I can't say this. I'm like 35. 33. What, how old am I? 33. Remember that song? I think Sierra sang it, but a sonic flood, I think, would make it popular. What can I say? What can I do? What can I bring to offer you? There is no gold, no precious pearl, nothing on earth that compares to you. Lord, here I stand with empty hands. What do we, what do we bring? Well, I forgot my remote, so I used to, I have this up on there, but well, football it, girl. Oh. <laughs> Romans 12. Paul tells us the most valuable thing that we can bring. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the great mercies of God, I urge you to offer your lives, your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. worship. Offering up your lives to the effort of exclaiming Christ as worth it. So first off, I would just say by Mary's example, you better take the limits off of your allegiance to Jesus. You better take the limits of what you think he wants in your life and let him tell you what he wants in your life. And I'm telling you, give him the best parts of you, the most treasured parts of you. Give him your life because ultimately, that act of worship shows he is worth it. Now, Mary is the one who shows us that ultimately, right? And of course, Mary, we find out in the story, gets really misunderstood. She gets criticized for her act of worship. <laughs> Isn't that kind of ironic? Isn't that kind of strange? Have you not seen that before? When someone gives his or her best to the Lord and everyone's confused by it? This is what's going to get us into the second part, the last part of our text. The, the, the question we're looking at now for the rest of the morning is what do we see? How do other people respond when the work, the witness, and the worship smell and they're, they're potent? How do people respond to the smell, the aroma of worship? Some people find it stingy. Some people find it beautiful. We're going to find that out in our text. Because what we find out next, when, when this great act of worship is, is made, we find one of the disciples pipes up. Who is it? Judas. Judas. Now, I'm just going to say, I, I love how John writes his gospel because he's not afraid 
to call out a disciple. Think about it. In, in the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, when, when Jesus is being arrested, it, they record that one of the disciples took their sword out and lopped off the ear of one of the temple servants. John's writing, he says, Peter did it. <laughs> in Matthew and Mark, at this same account, in this same narrative, Matthew and Mark say the disciples piped up and said, well, you could, well this could have been sold. Give it to the poor. John's like, Judas did it. <laughs> he also calls himself the beloved. He's just, yeah. <laughs> Apparently, he just doesn't want to be outed, right? He's a sinner too. He needs grace. So Judas raises a question, and my goodness, it's a good one. Is it not? It's one that we might think through. Because when I said, go buy a $50,000 bottle of perfume and pour it out, and somebody's like, why wouldn't we just give that to missions or someone who needs it, right? It makes sense. Why wasn't this perfume sold and given to the poor? Judas looks so good on the outside. Doesn't he? It's a moral question. He looks moral. He looks pious in this question. He seems to be concerned about the needs for the poor. And on the outside, he's doing something that's quite awkward. He is pinning acts of devotion and worship to Jesus against acts of compassion to the poor. He's saying, you could, you shouldn't do that because of this. When the church says that the two are never opposed to one another. In fact, church should be filled with both. We should have our nights of worship and we should have our Saturdays packing meals for the poor. Which, by the way, we found out all those meals we packed, they're heading to Turkey. Anyways, you'll find out more later. You can tell I'm squirreling this morning. You see, Judas looks really good on the outside. He, he's asking this seemingly interesting question. And Jesus gives a response. You'll always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me with you, which he's not downgrading ministry to the poor. He says, yeah, you're always going to have the poor with you. I'm not going to be here all the time. You, let her worship. Leave her alone. But Judas didn't actually care about the needs of the poor, did he? What did he care more about? You see, he was the treasurer of the ministry's money bag, right? He was the one who would make payments. He was the one who would receive donations. And he wanted that bottle to be sold and all of its proceeds put in his money bag so he can take from it, so that he can steal from it. Can you think, like literally, Think about the implications of what John is saying about Judas. Think about the implications. This is what he's saying. Judas values money above Jesus. Judas values money more than Jesus. He'd rather have his own. He'd rather get his own than to, to give an adoration and worship to Jesus. You see, Judas stands in direct opposition to Mary in this text. You see, Mary values Jesus above her wealth. 
Judas values wealth above Jesus. Guys, if this is your first time here, don't think that I always talk about money and wealth. I think this is actually the first sermon about it that I've preached in three years. So, so don't, don't be like, oh, he's always talking about money. You haven't even been here, okay? <laughs> this is the first time we talk about it, right? Judas values wealth above Jesus. Mary aims to give her best to Jesus for Jesus' benefit and sake. Judas aims to steal from Jesus for his own benefit. Greed sparks the boldness in Judas to steal from Jesus' ministry for his own gain. Guys, uh, Proverbs 10.7 says this, the memory of the just is blessed, but the name of the wicked shall rot. Guys, this is pointing to the reason. How many of you know somebody who's named Mary? Are you, you common, right? Yeah, it's a good name. It's great, great symbolism here of Mary who worshiped Jesus, anointed. How many of you named somebody Judas? You know anybody named Judas? Ever met someone with that name? Because that name has a stench. It rots. It is stinky throughout all generations. Why? Because we're finding out that Judas values money more than Jesus. He values his wealth more than Jesus. And it is a dangerous thing to value wealth more than Jesus. Here's a quote from John Chrysostom. He says this on money and the love of it. He says, a dreadful, dreadful thing is the love of money. It disables both eyes and ears and makes men worse to deal with than wild beasts, allowing a man to consider neither conscience, nor friendship, nor fellowship, nor the salvation of his own soul. But having withdrawn them at once from all these things, like some harsh mistress, it makes those captured by it its slaves. The love of money, not money itself, but the love of money is the root of all evil. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. And here Judas is serving his greed and using money for it. And here's the big problem. Money is not God. Money is not alive. Money cannot raise the dead. Money cannot love you back. Money will not shepherd you. Money will not teach you truth. Money will not give itself in your place. Money is not at the right hand of God interceding for you right now. Money is not going to give you its righteousness so that you are justified before God. Mary knew this. Judas did not. Money is not a means. Money is only a means to an end. Jesus is the end in and of himself. So here we have Judas forcing us to ask ourselves, is the limit of our worship of Jesus, is the limit of our worship on Jesus, is it in our money? Is it in our wealth? Does he not get to have that? And guys, I, 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 I uh, just this morning was reminded of something that I felt like I needed to confess. Remember um, the apples that we put out before you a few weeks ago and um, gave out for free? Um, my kids, that was my kids' idea. Now, they also wanted to do an apple stand 
Um, they got the idea from Bluey <laughs> to go put out a table, get all our apples out and put out a sign and see anybody in our neighborhood who wanted to buy apples. And they, they did it. And I mean, they made, they made a lot of money. I'm surprised. All three of my kids said, can we give all of it as an offering on Sunday morning? And my heart was, no, how about we split it up? How about we try to work through giving some of it to church, some of it to, I'll, I'll pay you with, some of it will pay for the expenses of things. And I'm confessing that I was limiting my kids in their act of worship to Jesus. And I feel more like Judas than I do Mary. Some of us, some of us won't offer extra acts of worship to the Lord because it doesn't pay back, because it doesn't benefit us. And I would just venture to say that that's the exact point of what worship truly is. It's not meant to benefit you. Anybody who wants to live their life and worship Jesus, trying to get things out of what their acts are doing for Jesus, that's just sten that's stenchy. That's got a stink on it. So I would just really encourage you, find those ways and those areas in your heart, those limits of where your true worship is willing to go. Now, just real quick, we're not done with the text because we find out that this crowd comes in. The last part of our text turns our attention to those who wanted to join in on the aroma of worship to Jesus and those who wanted to snuff it out. Now, the Jews, they find out that Jesus is there in Bethany and they want to come and see him, but they don't want to just come see him. They want to see Lazarus. You know that guy? What did, what did Jesus do to him? He, uh, what? Raise him from the dead. Here it is again. Jesus raised him from the lead. He was dead and now he's alive and he's reclining at a table. And so this large crowd comes down from Jerusalem. They want to see Jesus and they want to see Lazarus because Lazarus' witness is an aroma of worship to Jesus. In verse 11, we find that there's a ton of people who are deserting their old faith, their old ways, and they're coming to faith in Christ on the testimony of Lazarus, on the witnessing of Lazarus in his life. And what do the chief priests want to do? They want to snuff out the aroma of worship from Lazarus' life. Verse 10 tells us that they're going to kill Lazarus too. You see, Judas' greed inclines him to thievery and eventually betrayal. The greed of these chief priests inclines them to murder. Remember, they, they threw the healed blind man out of the synagogue who could have borne witness to Christ every week as they gathered. 
They threw him out. They didn't want to hear his aroma. His, they didn't want to smell his fragrance of worship to Christ. Here's Lazarus. His life is reeking of the glory of Christ. It's, it's potent with the worship of Jesus, and they want to snuff it out. If you can't accept the evidence, then you have to get rid of it. Seeing Lazarus' evidence, his life was a witness as evidence to the worship of Jesus as the Messiah. So Lazarus is just a loose end that needs to be tied up. Guys, I just want to say a few things and I'll be done. There are going to be times when your life has such a beautiful aroma of worship to Christ that there are going to be people in the world who hate you because of how you smell. Who despise you because of your, the fragrance of your life as worship to Jesus. And they'll want to put it out. Remember, 1 Corinthians, Paul says that to the world, the gospel is foolishness. It stinks. But to the Lord, the gospel is his wisdom. Guys, the aroma of worship to Christ is beautiful to Jesus and all those who love Jesus, but it's a stench to those who do not align with, affiliate with, or give their allegiance to Jesus. This is why Lazarus, he's not still living, he's, he's dead. He died. It's why almost all of the disciples were either crucified, beheaded, boiled, burned, stabbed, stoned to death because of their aroma of worship to Christ that emanated from their lives. Today, it's why Iraqi Christians are hunted for their faith. It's why Kim Jong-un in North Korea has executed hundreds of Christians this year alone. It's because of the aroma of Christ is a stench to the world. But again, what does verse 11 remind us of? that there are people who find the aroma of Christ more beautiful than anything, and they're willing to give their best to him too. There will be people who smell the aroma of your worship to Jesus and say, I want to start smelling that way too. (laughs) And they'll join in. So we've covered a lot of ground. It was only 11 verses. We've covered a lot, and the one thing, how do we apply this? Because I, I, did I put like five action steps for you? Did I give you like five points to change your life? No. Here's what this whole story is ultimately about. You ought to humble yourself to the lowest place of a servant and offer the best that you have in worship to Jesus. Apply that. of the many titles that were given in our identity as Christians, as sons and daughters, as heirs and co-heirs, we're told by Jesus himself that we ought to consider ourselves as unworthy servants. And that worship to Jesus is our duty. It's our purpose. Remember we just sang about that. It's why we exist. So my prayer for us today, and I'm gonna pray this way as we end, is that the aroma of our worship 
to Jesus among this flock, among this church family, would rise and emanate out of the hallways and doors of this building, rush and flow into the streets and the community and your neighborhoods, and that this whole city, this whole region, this whole valley will come to smell the aroma of Christ and worship to him through your life. And they'll be forced to either smother it out or join in. Whether you are working, whether you are witnessing, you are worshiping. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I am... I have confessed to my brothers and sisters in your presence uh, and I don't know if I'm the only one. I'm sorry for how I limited my child's, my children's desire to worship you through giving greatly, sacrificially. I thank you for their heart in wanting to be more like Mary than Judas. I'm sorry for my heart Clean it up, God. And I pray, Jesus, that that you would convict and challenge each and every one of us here with the same struggle, with the same pitting, right? Like with, with, uh, how could we ever get to the throne room of heaven and think that we're going to be heckled because we gave too much, because we offered too much to you, God? I don't believe we're going to have that day. God, I believe that you right now are worth getting the best parts of us. All of us. And I pray, Jesus, for those in here who have not had their lives offered to you as a fragrant offering, as an aroma of worship to you. I pray, Jesus, that this day would be the day they decide to get off the throne put themselves on the altar and offer their lives as a holy living sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to you, and that the aroma of their lives would be a fragrant offering pleasing to you. May that be the case in our church. May we have an aroma of worship to Jesus, being convinced of his worship in such a way that as we live our lives, whether we work, whether we witness, as we worship, I pray that the aroma of worship to Christ, of his worship would spread through this valley, through this church family, and that people would come to join in, offering their lives as a sacrifice, as a burnt offering available for your use, advancing your kingdom. God, we offer ourselves to that, to you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you guys would stand, I'd love to pray a prayer of benediction over you. And as you do, I've got, I've got a few things I want to tell you about. There's one announcement for, for uh, uh, the parents of little kids. Um, one of the things that we are having happen on a routine, kind of, is that kids are going unsupervised from this time on. And uh, oftentimes what we have found is that that whole wing just gets abolished. <laughs> like there's, there's food all over the living room. It has turned into a, a war room. Um, and so we're just kind of asking that uh, 
parents with younger kids, uh, we're going to close those two doors off. If we could keep them in the lobby and in the gym, if they want to go down to the gym, pull out the balls and start pegging each other with them, they're more than welcome. But we're just kind of asking that parents, you guys would be able to supervise your kids moving forward uh, at this time. Um, Also, for those of you who uh, haven't heard the potluck is next week, bring them good dishes. We want to eat good and we're going to have a good time. And finally, if you need prayer, if you need prayer for healing, prayer for encouragement in your faith, uh, we're going to be, we're going to have a prayer team down here. I'll be here too. Whatever you need, we want to pray over you as you need. Uh, But my prayer of benediction comes from Ephesians 3. It says this, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have an incredible week. Smell good for the Lord.